interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Thank you for your <clears throat> kind welcome. It's good to be here. Um, I actually came here about 20 years ago and spoke to something not dissimilar from this group, but um, uh, I don't know if any of you were there at that time, but um, it's nice to be back. Kingston, of course, is the uh, North American city from which InterVarsity North America began. You should just remember that, that uh, when Howard Guinness first came in 1928, it was to Kingston he came, and it was in Kingston that the, uh, the movement began. Uh, just a, a word of um, invitation. Um, what I want us to think about today, I'm quite happy for us to... Uh, there's the man. It was you that I was with. Good to see you again. Um, okay. Very good. Graduate Christian Ford. Well, I was. Yeah. Hesitated to suggest it might be longer, but maybe it was. Um, okay. My word of invitation. Um, you had the title. What was the title? Uh, Speeding and shrinking, living biblically in a technologically saturated world. Okay. Uh, the speeding and shrinking has to do with the nature of the world, too, has to do with a sense of uh, acceleration uh, and a sense of um, compacting or compression. Um, living biblically, fine. Um, technologically saturated, I don't want us to think of it as out there. I want us to think of it as in here. We're not thinking about FDA uh, permitting... Um, radio frequency identification tags to be implanted in Alzheimer's patients. We're not thinking about stuff out there. We're thinking about it down here and with us. So it's living with technology. But the invitation is to you to ask questions and, and uh, make suggestions as to where we go because I'm open to going in one of several directions depending on where you're coming from. I don't know you, so please, when you ask your questions, make them ones that are, are going to stimulate us to, to move somewhere because I'm happy to go with, uh, go with the flow. Okay, think about it. The uh, digital alarm clock <coughs> switches on the radio in the morning, waking us not merely to a new day, but to the music or the news of that day. We're immediately connected with different cultures and different uh, crises, catastrophes, comical situations in the lives of others. The shower tap activates water flow from a gas or electrical heater. And uh, beyond that, through conduits from uh, <clears throat> tank, tower, well, Shavers and uh, hair dryers, <coughs> don't have a lot of use for those in uh, my case, but you might, uh, use, more, use more electricity before we arrive at uh, the kitchen to switch on the stoves, my, uh, kettles, microwaves, coffee machines. If we're lucky, we'll avoid getting a phone call before we 
get into the car to drive to the office, although we may have a call on the cell phone uh, before we arrive. The road system that we're using is also highly technological. Depending not only on the paved roadway, but on the traffic lights and uh, often underground sensors, traffic surveillance cameras, automated toll systems, and so on. At the office, the first ritual is to flick on the computer, to check email, uh, and maybe also to check some relevant, significant websites as well. Break from work means um, involvement with more machines that dispense water or vend coffee. And it may well be that fridges and microwaves are uh, featured in the lunch provision slot as well. And some days we use the lunch break in uh, order to <coughs> go to a fitness center where we interact with more machines. Eventually, the office is left behind uh, because it's time to pick up the children from uh, after-school caregivers once more using the car. Of course, the children complain that uh, they want us to get a different car, one with a DVD player and... Um, uh, video games in the rear section. Once home, thankfully, the kids are happy to play uh, in the sunshine in the backyard. And uh, they actually get so engrossed in a game that we pull out the digital camera so that we can uh, email a few photographs of last Christmas's gifts in use to Grandma, who provided them. Then it's back to the stove and the microwave to... Uh, make dinner with half an eye to the TV screen on the countertop. Later, we'll flop down in, size, in, in uh, front of the uh, full-size TV screen in the family room to watch a show or two before checking the lunches for tomorrow, putting out the garbage and recycling. Waste removal is another very complex technical system, and collapsing into bed, pausing just long enough to reactivate the alarm. Did you really get up this morning and come here to hear about someone else's day? It's all very ordinary, routine. Uh, you smile, I suspect, in recognition that these are days that we all know about. It's the sort of thing that happens routinely. And the point of just going through the day is to indicate how much every moment of the day we're involved with some technical device or system, and often several at one time. We cheerfully depend on machines and abstract systems to provide us with services or connect us with services, yielding what we think of as more efficient ways of doing things with accompanying comfort, convenience, or ease. But in the day that I described, there were perhaps some limits or questions of limits anyway. We don't know if the car was answered while the, uh, sorry, the phone was answered while the car was in motion. Uh, I see from the signs that uh, drivers aren't supposed to do that in this state. Uh, we do know that the kids didn't go straight in to watch TV. And we're aware that uh, the recycling of some waste materials was seen as worthwhile. But were those devices ever really considered in depth or detail? Did we stop to ask what the machine means? 
or whether the electronic or mechanical tool is really enhancing life. Didn't we just take for granted that these are the ways that we all uh, organize things, communicate with others, travel, remember, are entertained, and so on and so forth? We just assume that's the way we do it. Well, perhaps we did take it for granted. But why would it matter anyway? What, what does it have to do with us? Um, these things are just tools, are they not? Our technologies, our technical systems are ethically neutral. It's surely the way we use them that matters. Well, my answer to that question is no. They are not ethically neutral. It does matter how we use devices, but none is neutral, not for one second. They're produced within very specific social, political, cultural milieu, and they lead to what uh, Langdon Winner, for example, one of his books is on the table, I noticed, calls new forms of life. While we worry about the speed of the connection, the resolution of the image, or even the risks of toxicity or of identity theft or something, far deeper issues are simply ignored. <clears throat> when we take things for granted, we tend, by definition, not to notice, <clears throat> not to notice them for what they are. The corporations that are keen to sell us new uh, or upgraded devices want us not only to take them for granted, but they also want us to take for granted that they will have to be discarded and exchanged for new models on a regular uh, and frequent basis, which also underscores their apparent indispensability. We need them, we can't do without them. Economic growth, of course, you'll recognize one of the key idols of our time, depends on constantly expanding demand for new technologies. And we all know our duty to keep consuming. We hear that duty reiterated from the very highest level. Indeed, in this country, from the White House itself. At the same time, we have been encouraged to think that our devices are merely tools. Very popular way of thinking about them. Langdon Winner again would say that the tool mentality is mere shallow instrumentalism. His words. Yet clearly they are not. Whatever the actual impacts of television, for example, the fact that North Americans spend around a day each week on average watching the screen is more than a mere impact of technology. Devices of all kinds help to shape our imaginations, our lifestyles, ourselves. Questions of design relate to the priorities and the purposes of corporations and their developers which in turn <clears throat> reinforce dominant cultural and political priorities. And we buy into such things. And by the way, where did that phrase come from? 
We buy into such things. We're buying into cultural and political commitments. Readily available technologies strengthen our sense that we have access to. Access to what? Access to power. Access to mobility. Access to security. Access to convenience. And again, you'll recognize those as key, well, key what? Values? Virtues? Let me repeat the list again. Power, convenience, security, and mobility. What are these things that are, again, from your faces, I see you recognize them as being central to our uh, lives together? We drive a Honda. Because we drive a Honda, we just received a magazine this week. And um, in the magazine, which is for Honda owners, apparently, we are told by President Takao Fukui that, and I quote, mobility is a basic desire, right, and joy for all people. A basic desire, right, and joy for all people. Look at the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. And then at the same time, questions go far beyond the issue of what we can do holding a food mixer or an iPod or whatever in our hands. These machines mediate our experiences and our activities. They actually become part of our lives such that we depend on them, develop a language and imagery that includes them, and so on. You don't have to have an RFID implant to become a cyborg. There's a sense in which we all are already in our intimate, everyday dependence. We don't have to be hooked up in a physical way to a machine to be utterly dependent on them and have our lives shaped and influenced by them. They mediate our experiences. Um, the language that we use, we lose our attention for a moment and we say, oh, I switched off. Um, we talk about surfing channels with uh, a remote or the internet with a mouse. We let words from uh, computer cultures, for example, permeate our everyday speech. We talk today without thinking about networks and protocols and interfaces and uh, simulation. All these words drip off our tongues. They're all words that come from computer cultures, or recently they come from computer cultures. So technology, I suggest, is a, an intrinsic aspect of all of our lives. It's folded into our daily activities in ways that reflect the priorities of uh, late modern consumer cultures. If there's an overriding uh, logic of technologies in our world, it is that of commodification. In the world of commodification, everything is uh, perceived as an object to be manipulated, controlled, and, of course, consumed. 
Albert Borgman argues that this can be seen, and again, his books are on the book table, this can be seen when we look at technologies within what he calls a device paradigm. Eloquent things, as he uh, describes them, become mere disposable commodities. We are, as he says, disburdened by devices as they allow us to disengage from reality in some ways, for example, by reducing labor time. Whipped cream becomes cool whip. Uh, hearths become heating systems. Those are the a couple of examples that he gives. And I think there's an awful lot to be learned from um, Mr. Borgman. I don't know if any of you are already fans of his work, but I think it's, uh, it's certainly worth, uh, worth a second look, the uh, writing that he does on new technologies. However, his somewhat ascetic-sounding critique can be, I think, taken a bit too far. And this itself can be uh, a kind of technological determinism. Everything comes under the sign of commodification and nothing escapes and all our involvement is somehow tainted such that we can have no joy whatsoever uh, living with technologies. Now, he doesn't actually say that, but you sometimes get the feeling from his writing that... uh, It's a a lament for lost worlds and a kind of asceticism that uh, we have to re-engage. I don't think we have to see a slippery slope and uh, a downward spiral in every gadget. Uh, As Harvey Mollock uh, observes, there may still be elements of joy and even spirituality in some items that I find Borgman criticizes as devices. But nevertheless, the device paradigm gives us some clues about the culture of commodification and technology. Okay, let's start doing some editing here. Um, Okay, let's, let's jump to a question that I hope engages us all. How do we start thinking Christianly about all that I have just been saying. How do we engage these things as Christians? Uh, Don Stott, a British Christian leader uh, whom I hold in high respect, often comments that we need to understand both the word and the world. Um, And I sure agree with him. We need to get to grips with, get a, a means of interpreting, get a hermeneutic for the world of technology. There's plenty of people doing clever work in biblical hermeneutics. What we need is a hermeneutic for technology that we can then bring to uh, meet those biblical hermeneutics. We need to engage with these things that affect us in our everyday lives. I think it helps to think of technology as a human activity rather than isolate things, devices out there. Let's think about the human activities that are involved. Technological know-how is important. Artifacts are important. Large-scale systems are important. But they all spring from what human beings do. Someone who mends bicycles depends on and develops technical expertise. Whether it's a clock or a combine harvester or a container ship, someone designed it and made it and others, all of us, are direct or indirect users. The thing may not work in the way that it was originally intended, 
uh, it may have unintended consequences. It may not work at all. Um, but it always can be related to human activity, and as such, it's as amenable as any other human activity to uh, moral assessment, ethical scrutiny, uh, and so on. Biblically, God's work is at work in technical activity. Uh, temple building in the Exodus, for example. Rules may be established for public safety. Uh, Leviticus, many rules that relate to uh, engineering design, for example, building of parapets on roofs to uh, create safety, uh, even when greater expense is involved in the building. Technology may be distorted by human pride and arrogance, most obviously Genesis 11 and the story of the Tower of Babel. If technology is something we do, how would we consider technological activity? Do Christians stand against or live with or embrace technology? Well, if it's a human activity and a human accomplishment, then like any other, it can be done in ways that are more or less consistent with God's requirements, God's priorities, God's purposes. Many people seem to welcome new technologies as labor-saving devices. We'll come to that question in a moment. Or as a means to make processes more efficient. Some love their gadgets and their gizmos. Um, I meet people who switch into confession mode when we're talking about this stuff and say, oh yeah, I, yeah that, that's where I am. I'm addicted to that stuff. I really love it. So it's perfectly possible to be uh, super keen. And I guess I could enthuse. We have, um, our Honda has four-wheel drive, and we have a little cabin near a lake, and uh, it's a very switchback gravel road. And the way that that machine grips the road as we are getting into our cabin, we couldn't get in there if we had uh, uh, just two-wheel drive on the car. So I, I can get excited about uh, that aspect, especially as it allows us to get in for uh, skiing and skating more in the winter. I could wax eloquent about the elegance and simplicity of uh, Apple computers. Um, I think my iBook is pretty cool. I confess to being um, impressed. Hmm? I'm an iBook man. Uh, to be highly impressed by the uh, lightness and strength of a titanium frame bicycle. I can't afford one, but um, man, those things are beautiful. How easily would that slip over into some kind of idolatry? I suspect that, um, you know, maybe not that much of a knife edge. Standing against technology, on the other hand, seems to deny certain things that may well be lovely, noble, true, and of good report. Usually, uh, like the Amish, people who are thought to oppose technology really oppose only specific technologies or are involved in the control of the development of technology along particular lines. I admire people who decide which technologies to use, how to use them, and bring good criteria to bear on the question. Seems to me to be a very Christian approach. And, of course, even the original Luddites, that's the swear word for those who uh, are opposed to technology by those who think it's great. But the original Luddites were not mindless machine breakers. Dispense with that nonsense. They 
met to decide which of the specific machines threatened their livelihoods and those of their families, and which had to be broken in protest. It was a very specific and ethically guided piece of protest. Okay, so they smashed somebody's property, and they're, you know, we could discuss the problems with that, but they weren't mindless machine breakers. They weren't opposed to technology as such. Somehow, we have to live with technology. It's an inescapable part of our human lives now, and like making music or making love can comport well or badly with how we were made and who we were meant to be. It can be creative and costly, it can be beneficial and baleful, uh, and it can have these effects on us, on the environment, and so on. I don't think that Christians are either for or against technology. But both the whole edifice of technological societies and each little tool of technique are subject to scrutiny from a Christian perspective. Living in technological societies is a muddy, ambivalent, complex business. And there's no evading that. Get over it. Paul the Apostle realized how easy it was to be sucked into the culture of his day, dominated as it was by the Roman Empire. Technology was not then as central as it is now, but other aspects of empire make the point. The system of law enforcement and punishment, of slaveholding and oppression, of economic exchange and uh, money, of imperial roads and travel, all these also had their effects on everyday life. You were part of the system no less than you are part of the system now. Paul's teaching and practices showed this refusal to conform to the empire. Brian Walsh and uh, Sylvia Kesnat's book on Colossians gives some strong clues here, perhaps too strong for some people, um, but they're strong clues and they're good clues about living in the empire in the 21st century uh, in, as compared with in Paul's day. Paul begged his hearers not to conform to the pattern of this world, to be turned, but rather to be transformed by the renewal of their minds. Then they learned through experience what God's way entailed in daily life. And indeed, that counts, the daily life, as true worship, Paul says, uh, yielding the whole spectrum of life, Romans 12, including technology, therefore, to God. If I ever write a book that is about these everyday technologies, I'm very tempted to call it Devices and Desires. Now, those of you who are um, Episcopalians, Anglicans in Canada, Church of England in Britain, will recognize those words because they come from the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. And they're, they're not in the general thanksgiving either. They're in the general confession. We have followed too much the devices and de desires of our own hearts. We've offended against thy holy laws, and so on. It comes in the confession. I think it would be a very interesting way of coding something about new technologies and our involvement in them. That we confess that they are parts of our lives, and we have a hard time 
uh, extricating ourselves from the mindsets and the lifestyles that normally accompany these devices. Yeah, we won't talk about the desires, but that comes into as well. I think the desires are uh, are very important. We could confess then that our own technological imaginations or practices and practices are perhaps less than perfect. Perhaps that we've spent a little too little time reflecting on them from a Christian and a Christ-centered stance. Then we'd be in a good position to start afresh, having made such confession. Our devices, technologically speaking, are always related to desires of some sort, whether good or bad. We could do worse than pray that our desires concerning our devices become more appropriate, more attentive to context, more in line with the priorities of a world in which loving mercy, seeking justice, and walking humbly with God come first. Now, uh, Christian, you originally told me 20 past was the time to stop. Can we? Okay, great. So, um, okay. I want us to ask the right questions, but I don't think we can ask the right questions unless we know where those questions come from. So, I'm going to go back to... um, some of the questions. I want to set out a little bit of a, uh, a biblical framework. Now, there are lots of ways of doing this. And uh, as I speak, I'm choosing which one to go for. But I think I'm going to go for a, a sort of biblical drama view. There are lots of ways. We could go into it from practices of uh, biblical personalities. We could go into it from great thinkers uh, within the Christian tradition. I think the biblical drama is the way to go. Uh, just now, and I, we can um, we can talk about that in uh, the next few minutes, and then open it up for the rest of the day. We'll start with relationships, and we'll get into the what I'm thinking of as the biblical drama. Why relationships? Because relationship is central to a biblical Christian approach to the world. There is nothing more central. That's where the Christian story starts. In the beginning, declares Genesis, God created heavens and earth. In the very next verse, the Spirit of God is at work, hovering over the waters. Then in the next uh, chapter, God is... uh, (coughs) heard saying, let us make human beings in our own image. The implication is obvious. God's self-description is plural. God, the being described by a singular noun, may at the same time be considered us, a plural noun. Elsewhere in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, God and spirit are seen as distinct yet one, and also in the New Testament, another figure seen in shadows, types, and promises in the earlier text, is disclosed as embodying, literally now, the self-same God, Jesus of Nazareth, Messiah. Okay, Trinitarian beginning. I would argue Trinity runs all the way through the biblical scriptures, absolutely crucial for everything we think about, right through to the most central thing Christians do, which is the Lord's Supper, Communion, Eucharist, uh, or whatever you call it. The embryonic statement of Trinity, three persons in one God, unity and particularity embraced in the same being. 
this God is doing something of cosmic significance in the story. He's making planet Earth and its inhabitants. God makes a material world of sparkling rivers and majestic mountains, towering trees, an explosion of exotic animals, creatures of all kinds, stands back and says admiringly, yep, that is cool. That's the uh, new improved version. The uh, potential for expansion, development, and fruitfulness is built in. And those um, shy but eager humans have a task in uh, <clears throat> a special responsibility, cooperating in caring for the Earth. Adam was not the rugged individualistic uh, CEO of Earth, Inc. Adam is a representative name for humans. Indeed, woman is made of the same stuff, and together they're appointed as Earth keepers. What's God, what is meant when God says, let us make in our image? Of course, it's been debated for a very long time what was meant. But I'll follow Colin Gunton and say it was intended to express rela- relationality. God is relational and makes creatures, humans, who are also defined by their relating in a world that also relates to itself and to God. Within the world, creation may be thought of as human on the one hand and non-personal on the other. So firstly, humans relate with each other, not as individuals, but as already social persons who are complemented by and completed by others. And then we relate in turn with the rest of creation, the rocks, the rivers, the rhinos, that are both fellow creatures and for which we also have special responsibilities to situate technology in that story. God sees the material world in all its colorful variety and uh, concludes happily that, yep, it's all very, very good. Now, I should say, Plato, Aristotle, and others got themselves somewhat muddled about this idea, imagining that God had more time for ethereal uh, forms than for the earthly and earthy realities of daily life. I think they've misled rather a lot of people with those fanciful ideas. It's a material world that we read about in the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament, and it's a material world that God loves, cares for, made, and is one day going to remake. So, it's this which is bursting with potential, both of its own and what human creativity will add. And that's where technology comes in what human creativity will add to the creational work within the uh, norms and structures of that creation. Now, of course, all that contrasts rather vividly with today's technological world. As I suggested, we've come to depend on abstract systems with many attendant risks. We're confused about how to interact with technology, not realizing why we love it and hate it at the same time. We're impressed by the amazing uh, inventiveness that gives us satellites, subways, laser laser surgery, whatever, but concerned when they seem to display Western decadence on Tanzanian TV, offer terrorist targets to twisted minds, or optimism about eternal youth through cosmetically remodeled faces. We're overwhelmed by the apparently unstoppable forces that drive technological development, and by the fact that this development benefits only a very limited segment of the world's population. We hear what we're promised about this or that labor-saving device uh, or indispensable upgrade, 
only to find that we still have to brush the lint out of our newly washed clothes or buy batteries more frequently for the upgraded device. The reason that there's such a disconnect between that world of the Genesis account and today is that there's more to the story than uh, I've given you so far. So we have to tell the rest of the story. And, of course, there is more of the plot yet to unfold. Tools and technical systems appear in the Genesis narrative. Garment manufacture comes first, if you reckon that sewing fig leaves is... uh, Anyway, um, Cain and Abel, respectively, engage in animal husbandry and agriculture. Cain's great-great-grandson is Lamech, who prides himself on his capacity for, I'm afraid, revenge killing which I suspect used, uh, involved using weapons. But his children, in turn, make music on flute and harp, reinstate the art of animal husbandry, and forge bronze and iron tools. Later in life, much later, he was 182 years old at the time, we are told, Lamech fathered Noah, who would ever be remembered for his backyard boat-building exploits. These technological activities are simply recorded without moral comment, even though by this time the results of the rebellion, of which we're told in Genesis 3, are increasingly dire. Whether or not violence was already compounded by weaponry, it's clear that Noah's famous boat was the means of saving a small group from what's recorded as the just anger of God against the wayward creatures who drifted off track. Note that while many were swept away in the flood, it was those who were left behind who were to carry on the great plan for planet Earth that God had in mind. Of course, those are the pictures that inform New Testament uh, dealings with the same idea too. God designated the rainbow as the sign of ongoing faithfulness to the whole created order and sealed a lasting covenant with people and land at the same time. Broken relationships, therefore, could be healed, reinstating the basic relationality with which the drama had begun. Worth mentioning a couple of deep-seated effects of rebellion. One is the escalation of violence using technology, and the other is the association of technology with idolatry. Very deep biblical themes, totally relevant to the 21st century as they were in biblical times. Whatever one believes about the just war or about states holding a monopoly of the means of violence, it's clear that armed conflict and warfare is ultimately inimical to the purposes of God. The relationality that appears at the start of the Genesis in the context, sorry, appears at the start of Genesis in the context of what the Hebrews call shalom. This is a state of affairs where reciprocal relations between God, people, and earth are in full harmony. It can be uh, broken in many ways, and armed struggle is one of them. And the same Hebrews believed um, in a coming Messiah who would restore shalom. Such that, in the technological sphere, remember Isaiah? The weapons of war would be recycled as agricultural tools, swords to plowshares, missile systems to grain silos. Antagonisms that issue in technique-assisted violence, don't exist on their own. They tend, they tend to accompany political claims about sovereign rule or economic claims to absolute ownership. The means whereby humans were to take responsibility for the earth uh, were ones that we could call delegated authority and careful stewardship. Things would go badly wrong when such principles were ignored or rejected. 
as the narrative of 1 Samuel 8 makes very clear indeed. Here, the rebel spirit is seen at work in the world of politics. The sought-after king, Samuel warns, would conscript soldiers, recruit servants, appropriate land, and generally accumulate power in ways that would disrupt the balance of mutual caring and uh, (coughs) sharing envisaged in the Deuteronomic texts. Technological artifacts and systems also seem to be implicated in these distortions. Possession of land becomes an obsession, as in the story of Naboth's vineyard. Or the weapons of war become the focus of attention in their own right, such that they are relied on for the victory. See that in a number of biblical psalms, for example. What has happened is that the means of achieving some end has become the end in itself. Virtue and praiseworthiness is ascribed to the thing, and attention is given and attention is given, and a pathological miscentering of life occurs. The technological idol develops rather quickly, easily at first, but then, uh, sorry, but at first quite imperceptibly. Technique and tools may be used for making idols. Craftsmen, welder, goldsmith encourage each other to pervert their skills in Isaiah 41.7. But then, as prophets so often pointed out, the tools themselves become idols. The military technology of chariots and spears is celebrated. Then their makers start to come to become like them. They look like them. They act like them. Psalm 135, verse 18. Though we're made in the image of the divine maker, if we exchange our allegiance for something, in this case technical, within the creation, we'll begin to act like our surrogate god. We'll be increasingly made in the image of that which we've substituted for the one in whose image we should be being remade in Christ. They tend to blind us to realities. They tend to bind us to their priorities. Isaiah 44, it's exactly what that passage is about. Anything is possible. Speaking of a space flight center, ex-President Reagan once said, there's nothing that the USA could not accomplish if those doubting Thomases would just stand aside. And we sacrifice for our idols too. Promises made for technologies are huge and frequently unfulfilled. The messianic age of peace and plenty doesn't seem to have come through the age of the computer any more than it did through the age of the railway each of which was hailed in those terms. All this does not mean, however, that the Messianic Age will not come. Indeed, in the biblical narrative, that's the whole point of the third act. After making of the good material world and the disruption of that world in the rebellion, technological activity was indeed rather compromised. The key event in this, the key event in this was the attempted construction of a city in the plain of Shinar and its accompanying Tower of Babel. This was the technological fall from grace. But it's clear from Noah's prize-winning inland marine shop that technological practices weren't written off as useless within the divine purpose. Life went on and was given extra blessing in the covenant that followed the flood. Later, the Hebrew temple building project would bring prominence to Bezalel and Aholiab, filled, we are told, with the Spirit of God in all kinds of crafts to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. 
Nevertheless, throughout Hebrew uh, history, there is an ambivalence about technology. It could be directed by divine or demonic purposes, would express these in the actual artifacts produced. The prophets denounced and warned, complained and cajoled, but the forces of violence and greed, not to mention idolatry, very often seem to govern technological development. And they also pointed out the limits of technological activity. You may well have the means to do something, but that is not a reason for doing it. Try telling people that in the 21st century. You may have the means of doing something, but that is not a reason for doing it. Isaiah, again, is very helpful on this. Does the farmer keep plowing and harrowing constantly? Says Isaiah in a moment of biting sarcasm. Just because he's got a great set of farming tools? No. Says Isaiah, you don't need a cartwheel to grind cumin. You don't need to drag a sledge over caraway. Just because you have these things, you don't need to use them. How would the farmer know that? How would the farmer know not to go harrowing and plowing just because he's got a great plow that he wants to show off to his neighbors? How would he know? Isaiah tells us, divine wisdom teaches technological limits. Isaiah 28, 23 to 29, if you want to look it up for yourself. Great passage. The same prophets also held out a hope of a new day when the Messiah would appear. Of course, some Jews were as puzzled uh, that Jesus of Nazareth appeared as the ordinary carpenter's son as they were that he didn't lead a zealot revolt against Rome. But the very fact that one claimed to, who, who claimed to be the son of God spent his early years with the smell of sawdust in his nostrils and the sound of hammering in his ears, I think we see an interesting affirmation, at least, of craft and technology skills. If Jesus indicated his approval of marriage by attending a wedding, we hear much of that, then here at least he is showing an acceptance of technical activity by gracing Joseph's shop with his presence. Flimsy grounds for arguing a Christian perspective from that, and I'm not trying to, but I just think there's something important there. The promised Messiah was going to put things in a new light, was going to restore shalom, and that's how Jesus saw his mission. Jesus is not just the shadowy figure who's vitally involved in making all things, the let us make of Genesis 1, or Genesis 2, but this Jesus continues to hold them together. And insofar as they're fractured and displaced, mends and reorders them. As Peterson paraphrases Colossians 1.20, all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed together and fit in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death. I think that's a neat translation of uh, Colossians 1.20. If we're right to think that technological activity was originally intended as uh, a means of opening uh, the creation, then it has to be part of the all things that are now reconciled at Calvary. There's another act. I'm going to talk about it later. 
in very brief before we go to um, refill our coffee cups. Following the rescue comes the renewal of all things. It's already beginning, but according to the ancient scriptures, we'll one day reach a state of full restoration. Or rather, God promises that the city will be established and that finally, shalom will permeate everything forever. What was begun at creation was not a mistake. God is not a failed creator. God intended to make a great earth and he has great purposes for it, whatever, that will one day be fulfilled. The point of restoring things after the devastation of the flood was to give creation a chance to start over. Similarly, 2 Peter 3, when the purifying fire comes, it will lay the earth bare, eventually revealing it as the new heaven and new earth, now finally reunited, no longer shuttling to and fro like the resurrection body of Jesus that went through doors, but you couldn't hold on to it, and all that strangeness will be gone. Heaven and earth will be one in the new heavens and new earth. Those who are left behind are the faithful to inhabit the domain in which the original purposes are finally realized. What began as a garden will end up as a garden city, complete with amazing artifacts and craftswork. Only the lighting will be supernatural. God will be its light. That's quite enough before coffee. And uh, what I want to do later on is look at some specific artifacts. We're going to do some work together thinking about, <clears throat> I think, three. We'll think about our motor cars, our cell phones, and our microwaves. Okay.